What a blessing it is to invite the Lord in to flood this place and change the atmosphere. And that, that, uh, that certainly prepares our hearts for what God wants to do with us today. Uh, we are in the book of Nehemiah. We've been in a study of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, over uh, these weeks, and it's been an exciting thing. I've called the study Building Back Boulder, and I want to ask the question at this point in our study, what has all this been about? What, what's going on? What's the goal? I mean, what, what, what is happening? Is this just about the temple and, uh, and sort of um, having, having a place is it about the religious pride in Jerusalem, the religious city? Are we, we got to get that back? Is it sort of a nostalgia for the things that have been torn down? Uh, and so I want to answer some of those questions about what, what is this huge movement? Uh, building back has taken 93 years. Uh, I know you might have thought this is a pretty long study. If you weren't counting, I was. We've been in this study for 18 weeks today. Not consistently, but back in the fall and then here, nine weeks in Ezra, nine weeks so far in Nehemiah, and there's a few more weeks uh, to come in our study. There's a little bit more to finish up, but that's, that's how many of you know that's a lot of weeks, yeah. And, uh, but 93 years uh, to get to this point where the temple has been rebuilt and the, all the walls and, and Jerusalem is coming together, the people aren't really moved back in. Uh, it began with Zerubbabel, who led the first return uh, to Judah to really resettle the villages, to replant the fields and the vineyards, uh, and then to uh, begin uh, rebuilding the temple. Uh, first, they set the altar, and then they began rebuilding the temple. Uh, Eighty years later, Ezra led another group. Uh, Eighty years has gone by, and he comes really because he's heard they aren't really doing things according to the word. And they need, uh, they need the Torah, and he's been studying Torah. He's been working on the, the Scripture, on the Word of God. And so he comes to refocus and to reform uh, the worship in the temple and reestablish the centrality of the Word of God. Fourteen years later, Nehemiah comes because he's heard the walls are just in shambles. This place is not a safe place. How will it ever be a city if you don't have gates and you don't have walls? So he comes and, and boy, he works really fast. By the time he gets going, 52 days and he rebuilds the walls and the gates. This guy has it genius of some sort, you know, with the power of God behind him. And he even organized to repopulate the city uh, by getting some organization. That's what we looked at last weekend. But this one huge question remains, what's this all about? This planning and the mass migration, the rebuilding, all this effort. What was the big goal? I'm going to answer that question. How many of you want to know? Okay, good. Then we'll stay around. Uh, But I'm going to answer that question. Actually, Chapter 8, the Word of God answers that question. So let's give our attention to Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning verse 1. It's on page 403 of the Bibles that are out there. If you don't own a Bible, please take home one of those Bibles. Put your name in it so it won't get mixed up when you come back. But uh, begin to have the Word of God and study and read the Word of God in your home. I invite you to be still in the house as we hear the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah. And on his right, Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Yozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught The people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites called all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast in the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. 
Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God. And in the square and at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now let's stand and let's pray. Father God, we honor your word in this place. We want to hear. We want to hear what you have spoken. We want to hear what you have for us. We want to have understanding and we want to apply the things that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So now that the walls and the gates were rebuilt, the people were called together. And this was a big assembly. They had some safety now because of these walls and these gates. And there's a great sense of unity uh, the, the phrase, they were gathered as one man. You find it a few places in Scripture. But it meant that they were all of one mind. They weren't bickering. They weren't arguing. They weren't jostling or anything like that. They were of one mind. Very, very united. And they were united around this great victory. I mean, we sometimes talk about how after 9-11 there was a sense of unity or, or other times. But this was after a great victory. We, we've seen the rebuilding. We see that everything's coming back together And so we find a unity in that. So they said, let's call for Ezra. Doesn't he have those scrolls he's been teaching from? Let's have him come and read from the word of God. We want to hear the word of God. And so uh, that's what happened. They they began to hear. Now, Now, at that point, the word of God consisted of just five scrolls, five books called the Torah. Let's say that together. Torah. It's a really important thing. For us to know, you might even win on Jeopardy with that. What is Torah? Uh, But these five scrolls are also called the Pentateuch, five scrolls, five books. Uh, They're also called the five books of Moses or the law or the law of Moses. Uh, There are other books that are going to be codified later on. But this was what they had at that time. It was very, very important as they began to, to read. Now, we suspect, most scholars feel that Ezra had brought back from Babylon, uh, this Torah, and probably others. In the book of Second Maccabees, it says that he had a collection, a library of the writings of the kings and of David. So he's really instrumental in bringing together what we know as our Bible and, and, and what the Hebrews would know as their Bible. Today, we know that the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. Say that with me, Tanakh. And that's just a really good word to know. I mean, if you have a Jewish neighbor and they say, well, I'm going to get a Bible for my granddaughter for her bat mitzvah. And you say, ah, a Tanakh. You will make a connection. You you really will. Because they'll say, you really care about what I believe and what I practice. So there's three parts to the Tanakh. 
there's the Torah, which we already have talked about. There's the Ketuvim, which is the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Daniel. And there's the Navaim, which is the prophets. The prophets were actually being preached, a number of them, right during this time. The prophets are preaching, and those are going to be codified in about 200 more years. But today, that's what the Tanakh, that's what a Jewish Bible consists of. The people had gathered at outside the water gate. Now, let me just be very clear. That's not the hotel in Washington, D.C. Do you guys remember that? Okay, so I mean, it's what I think of. Okay, good. Some 70s people, all right. But there was a square. It says that there was a square facing the water gate. And as for the priest, he stood on a wooden platform that they had built just for this purpose. And, uh, and he began reading uh, the law before both the men and the women. In fact, it says it twice, before men and women. It wasn't always that way in Judaism. There's a time when they said, well, women don't need to come. It's just the men. But at the very beginning, this is the beginning of rabbinic Judaism. This is when teaching begins. I mean, that's what we have just read and heard about. And both men and women were there and those who were able to understand. That means the children were there. And what about the little, little kids? Did they have a nursery? Probably not. They were probably in arms. But those who were able to understand were there. They were listening. And they had this reading. And this reading lasted from early morning, and that actually means before dawn, when there's first light, first light to midday. Say, wow, that is a long scripture reading. You thought Pastor Jeff read long scriptures. (laughs) Got nothing on, uh, on Ezra, that's probably five, at least five or six hours. They were standing for five or six hours. I won't make you stand and just experiment with that. I, I, I happen to know that it takes about 14 hours to read all five books of the Torah without stopping. It takes 14 hours. You want to know how I know that? I Googled it, of course. Okay, But we won't test it. It would take a while. And these 13 men stood with him that whole time. It's just kind of amazing. Uh, Ezra blessed, uh, how about them names? There's some names in there, aren't there? Ezra blessed the Lord, uh, the the great God, and the people responded by saying, amen, amen. You want to know where that came from? Some churches, they say, we don't say amen around here. Well, they did then. Amen, amen is a very very, uh, scriptural response. And, And then... What happened next is just amazing. We really don't want to miss this. The word drew them into worship. And so we want to really understand that relationship of what was happening there. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They began worshiping. And so word and worship go together. Why don't we say that? Word and worship go together. They're not two separate things. They're not two separate parts. They're not two separate activities. Uh, And and it's really important that we understand that because sometimes I talk to people and they say, "Uh, I just want the word and that worship stuff I don't really care for. That's not biblical. It's not, and it's not authentic. Or sometimes people will say, "Uh, I just want the worship, that word stuff. Let's have a night with just worship, no word. That is not biblical. Word and worship go together. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that as teams. You know, uh, I, I was visiting uh, some time ago in a, a really large church, and the worship was just amazing and wonderful, and they had this great team, and they were going there just worshiping their hearts out, and the people were worshiping their hearts out, and I saw a fellow coming in. I thought, he's a little bit late, you know, because I think the worship's almost over, and he had someone else with him, and he sat down, uh, and, 
he sat down and we're all standing. And, and I noticed he's, he's kind of looking at things. He had a guy next to him and I realized that's the preacher. And he has his security guy next to him and he's looking at his notes and he's looking at his watch and kind of seeing, you know, how much longer. And then when it wraps up, he goes up and he preaches. And I just thought, now, I don't know. His heart may have been perfectly right. He may have been worshiping since 2 a.m. It may have been. So I don't want to judge him. But I know I can't do what I'm doing right now if I'm not worshiping with you first. So it's why I'm always here worshiping. If I step out, it's because I got a reason to step out. Worship and word go together. They always go together. And the worship team, I've been in some churches where the worship team or the choir, they, they disappear and they go off and they're gone. But they don't, well, they did their gig and now the, now the word thing, that's not their gig. That's not their part. Now, in our, in our church, we have, our team is here three times, so they're here one of the times, okay? Just so you know, if you see worship people going out, they're going to a Sunday school class or they're doing some planning or some things like that. But worship and word go together. It's so critical that we understand that. So these 13 Levites then begin to help them understand the law. These are the teachers. Understanding. It's what I'm doing right now. It is to help us understand the word. How about those names, you know? Hashbadana? You know, somebody asks you, could you give me a suggestion of a biblical name for my baby? Give them that one, Hashbadana. I've never met a baby or anybody named Hashbadana. Um, but teaching the word is, is, is not just hearing the word. Um, it, we hear it, and sometimes we hear it, and God impresses it into our hearts. But we need to understand it, and that's what happened here. We don't know exactly how that happened. Nehemiah doesn't tell us. Did they stop periodically and say, well, now we're going to have a teaching. We're going to have an explanation from one of the Levites. They may have done it that way. He just doesn't tell us. So they were explaining and understanding. They read clearly and then gave the sense of the reading so the people understood. And as they began to get the sense of what the word was about, and they probably hadn't heard much of the word in their whole lives. You know, that they hadn't, this is a, a new beginning. They're bringing rabbinical teaching and practice back into Jerusalem. And as, as that happened, the people wept. They began, they, they began weeping. When I understand the word, it makes me weep. Now, that can mean a lot of different things. I don't know about you, but sometimes you read the word, and it, it just the truth of it just makes you weep. And it's with joy. I never realized that. How much God loves me. How much God cares. How much God gave for me. And you, and you weep. It could be also a conviction of the spirit when you realize, I've been missing the mark. I, I have not been where I need to be. And the word impacts us and we begin to weep. And that, this is happening here. And they're beginning to cry and they're beginning to weep over this stuff. Sometimes when we come face to face with the word, our unworthiness is revealed. Our ungodliness is exposed. Our, our failures are uncovered. Our desperate need for God is discovered. And that can make us weep. But Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites, they... We kind of settled that down. I won't say they rebuked it, but they said, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. This is a holy day. This is a day for rejoicing, and we don't want to miss that. You know, and I don't think they were just saying, don't worry, be happy, you know, cheer up. It was a lot more than that. Something profound happened on this day. 
And, and so Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites said, don't, don't grieve. Now listen to what they said. Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. That means you're to have a feast. You're to have a barbecue. This is more than Sunday lunch. <laughs> this, is a, this is a really big deal. Eat the fat, that, that means barbecue, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. If somebody doesn't have any, share with them. For this day is holy to our God, and do not be grieved. And then here comes this verse that probably all of us have heard and maybe sung at some point or another. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Will you say that with me? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's interesting, it doesn't even say our strength. It's a declaration over the people. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say that? The joy of the Lord is your strength. You can do it better than that. Let's say it again together. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Somebody needed to hear that today. I guarantee you. Because I'll just say all this week, I needed to hear that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's this amazing declaration. And this is what this journey is all about. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This has been the goal. This is what everything has been moving toward for for all these weeks. 18 weeks of study of the 93 years of work. God has wanted this. His people gathered around his word, finding joy in him. That's not happiness at the happiest place on earth. This is joy in him. And we suddenly realize All of this, Ezra and Nehemiah, the whole thing we've been studying last fall and this spring, it was never about the temple building, even though that was important. It was never about the rituals and the sacrifices, even though those opened the way to God. It was never about the walls and the gates, even though the walls and the gates create the space. It wasn't even about the scrolls. But God is revealed in the scrolls. It's always been about finding the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And where do we find that? Word, worship. And then we find the joy of the Lord. So what is it? Let's look at it. The Hebrew word here is chedva. Say that with me and try to do it without spitting, okay? Chedva. You have to clear your voice, uh, clear your throat a little bit. It really just means gladness or rejoicing. And it could be used in any number of situations. It could mean that you had gladness or rejoicing uh, at the uh, wedding of your daughter. It could be that you had gladness or rejoicing at the birth of a child or a grandchild. It's the same word. The, The key is where we find this gladness or rejoicing. It's an inner rejoicing. It's not dependent upon circumstances. The joy of the Lord is what carries us through the worst of times. And that's why it says that it is our strength. And frankly, without the joy of the Lord, there is no building back. The building back without the joy of the Lord is just another episode of fixer upper. It is. It's just how how do we how do we repair this city? How do we fix fix this temple back up? So the key is it is the joy of the Lord, and it is rooted, totally rooted, in the Lord and who He is. Why don't we read that out loud together? The joy of the Lord is totally rooted in the Lord and who he is. It's even more than joy in the Lord that we experience. Joy in the Lord means we're experiencing joy because of of blessings and things like that. It's the joy that the Lord himself gives of himself. 
And it really points to a fulfillment that is New Testament, that is Jesus. The best place that I find it is in Hebrews chapter 12, a familiar passage of Scripture. And it describes the the great ministry of Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I think that included Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and all these people, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's get rid of the stuff that pulls us down and let us run with endurance, with strength, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, this is the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross for you. He despised the shame of the cross for you and won this victory for you. That's the strength that he has and that he wants in you. So the joy of the Lord gives us an endurance like no other. This this joy uh, empowered Jesus to endure those things, the cross and the shame. And this joy empowers us to lay aside every weight and every sin the things that that drag us down and cling to us. And this this joy enables us to run with endurance. The race set out before us. Each of us has a different race. Your race is different from my race. So the joy of the Lord is your strength even, and this is really important to think about, the joy of the Lord is your strength even in hard times, like if you're enslaved in Egypt, if you're wandering in the desert without food or water, if you're in the land of milk and honey with lots of food and water. The joy of the Lord is your strength even if you're in exile in Babylon or you're scattered or dispersed around the world as the ten tribes were. Even if you must endure a cross, Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me. Even in that situation, the joy of the Lord is your what? Boy, that's weak for strength. Let's say it together. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's say it to the person next to us once again. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because we need that. I won't ask you to raise your hands. I I just know that we need that. In the New Testament, we learn that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit within us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's not the second piece of fruit. It's all fruit, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. It's the second manifestation of the fruit that's listed there. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. It's a strength that carries us through and the law no longer condemns us. So where do you get this joy of the Lord? Really, really important. There's a hint up there on the screen. And John 15, um, 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, and that means full to overflowing. He don't want you to have a little bit just when you need it, a little dabble, do you? None of that. Anybody remember that? <laughs> this is a fullness of joy, and the joy it originates in him and in his words spoken over us. So the joy of the Lord is relational. It's not emotional. I like the way that John Piper uh, talks about it. He says, we are not just rejoicing over what we know about Jesus. 
We are rejoicing with the very joy of Jesus over what he knows about everything, especially what he knows about his father, how much his father loves us. We rejoice in that. He says, these things I have spoken to you. He was specifically, uh, he had just been talking about what it means to be in the vine. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me stays connected to me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's about relationship. It's about relationship with Jesus. All of this. So the joy of the Lord is really, it's an an announcement by his word, an announcement over the people of God that happened long ago, and and it's what we're called together to do. Uh, It's a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the sap that is flowing from the vine and, and when we are connected to the vine, and it's ignited by the word made flesh to dwell among us. I love the song that we sang, the first song that we sang uh, in our worship today. I, I, I hope that you, you heard it. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We're actually going to sing that. We're going to sing you out on that in a few minutes because it's so good. Joy in you. You are the house of the Lord. See, it wasn't just about that joy was in that square near the water gate. It's about the house of the Lord is right here. It's not even about, I went to a church and they really had a lot of the spirit, the atmosphere, and a lot of joy there. That's not it. It's here in you. And we experience it when we gather together. And when when that begins to happen, we call that revival. As many people are experiencing the joy of the Lord. On the second day, they got together for Bible study again. They hadn't had enough. Five, six hours wasn't enough. Now, it wasn't everybody. It was the heads of the households. And the Levites and the priests, they said, we want to study this some more. And they they kept on reading. And they got to the book of Leviticus. Uh, in the Torah, and they found, look here, there's an appointed feast coming up. It's this month. It's called the Tabernacles or Booths or Sukkot. And and actually, that's a kind of thanksgiving for Jewish people. That's what it is. If you ever hear someone talking about it, Tabernacles, Uh, because it's a time of thanksgiving for God bringing the Jewish people, bringing uh, his people out of slavery through the desert. And, and into the land of promise. And it was to be the second day of the seventh month. And so the timing was perfect. They said, we've got about two weeks to prepare for this. And they sent everybody out to begin gathering things. Um, it hadn't been observed in a very long time. And the Feast of Booths was celebrated as they came together. And it was this remembrance of coming out of captivity. And this is how it works. If you're not familiar with it, you build a hut out and they do it today. If you, we've been to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's amazing. Out, out on the awnings and out on the balconies, there's little huts, and out everywhere there's little huts. We live in a hut. We dine in a hut for seven days. Why? Well, it's not just because we want to camp in the fall. It's because we want to remember what it was like when we didn't have a place. 
We, we want to remember what it was like when we didn't have a, ha- a roof over our head. I mean, it really sounds like an amazing thing for teaching the next generation. But these things are things we have to be thankful for. And, and so this amazing celebration goes on, this feast of the booths. And, and what it illustrates more than anything is that the people of Judah became doers of the word. They had studied the word. It doesn't mean that we should go and do a feast of booths. It's an amazing thing to do. But they studied and they found a truth there and they applied it. James 1 says it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's read that out loud together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's when it kind of comes full circle and in the joy of the Lord, we do the word of God. We do what he has shown us. So what is Ezra and Nehemiah about? I, I would be tempted to say it's all about the word, but it's not about worshiping the word. And sometimes churches get into that where they worship the word so much that they're missing the people and the relationships. It's about how the word draws us close to God in worship. And, and sometimes churches get into that where they worship worship. It's kind of, kind of an issue that comes sometimes. It's about how the word and worship ground us in the joy of the Lord. And it's about hearing and doing the word out of that. But the word of God is central to everything that God is doing and everything that God is creating among us. Think about it for a minute. Without the word, we'll never know who God is. You do not know who God is without the word of God. He tells us who he is. And we'll never know what our need for God is, how how much we need him. We'll never know uh, the gravity of our sin. Without the word of God, we'll just say, well, I'm okay, you're okay, I'm not as bad as other people. I mean, right? But the word of God tells us, no, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin is death. We, we need to know these things. And we'll, we'll never know the grace and the mercy of God. He's loved you with an everlasting love. I mean, all of these amazing expressions of his grace and his love and his mercy. And we'll never know the salvation that he offers in Jesus. Wow. And so we find joy, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. And really, this is why uh, the word is so central to everything we do at Faith Fellowship. When we um, were planting this church 28 years ago, we centered on it. We said, what are we going to be about? Well, we have to be be centered in the word of God. We're, we're, We're very much centered in worship, but we need to be centered in the word. We have missions, and we're going to give the missions, but we're centered in the Word. Everything is guided by the Word of God. And that's why we're talking about walk through the Bible one-day seminar. In five hours, you can learn the whole Bible, not just, uh, not just a, a, a chapter or two from the Torah. You'll learn the whole Bible in five hours. Now, you won't learn everything about it, but you'll, you will know it. I, it's just something you should not miss. We're talking about summer camp, discovering God's power, digging into the word. We're talking about our vacation Bible school centered in the word, in the Bible. The twists and turns of Peter's life and ministry, it's, it's marvelous. Everything that we do, whether it's worship or study or music or decisions, we turn to the word to see how does this line up? How does this relate? How does the word guide us? So how do we get the joy of the Lord as our strength? I'm just lifting this again out of the text. Read the word and listen. We have to listen. It's not just words. Seek understanding through sound teaching. 
hear the word as it reveals our need. We need to really hear. Hearing is a matter of the heart. Worship in response to the word. Seek the joy of Jesus in you so that your joy may be full. Surrender to the Holy Spirit's fruit as your strength. And do it. Do the word. Carry out the things that are there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that that you, by your spirit, teach us that we might gain understanding. We thank you and we, we bless your name. And we seek to, to walk in joy with you. May we be on that journey in Jesus' name. Amen.